Before we get going, let me give you a little bit of a review, let you know where we have, where we have been, and then give you a short preview of where I hope to go today. And uh, so with that, just by way of a review, um, one of the major themes in the book of Ecclesiastes is worship. Worship has been a major theme in Ecclesiastes. And, and you may be thinking, where? I haven't really seen that. What we have seen, though, is that those, quote, under the sun, and we've defined that, that is the person who does not live for the glory of God, but who lives for the glory of self. Those under the sun have various objects of worship. That is, those things that they consider ultimate. It may be position or power or finances or pleasure, but they have exalted those to that which is ultimate. And meanwhile, the preacher has exhorted his readers to worship God alone. So what we have seen up till now in the book of Ecclesiastes is misplaced worship. People have worshipped that which is created and not the creator. But we also see misplaced fear. The preacher has detailed the folly of exalting that which is temporal. And fearing um, that which is not God. They, they fear insignificance. They are fearing being forgotten. They might fee- have the fear of missing out. Look at all my friends and all of these people around me. They're having a great time. They're, they have the great jobs and I am missing out. They fear lacking resources, being oppressed. They fear monogamy. They fear sobriety. Thinking that the, that the world's understanding of relationship and, and temperance is, is meaningful and the answer to their issues. Instead, fearing God is the ultimate for fulfillment. And so they have a misplaced fear and they have misplaced worship. The exaltation of the created, we have learned, is vanity and chasing after the wind, while the exaltation of the creator is that which satisfies. So you can see these two extremes that the preacher is, is coming at. And so today, as by, by way of preview, um, a little bit of a, uh, an idea of where I'm going to go. I think I have kind of an outline here of, of where I want to go. The preacher is now going to turn his pen to vanity in the house of God. We've described vanity as that which is meaningless, pointless, fleeting. And yes, vanity, emptiness, pointlessness, dwelling within the very house of God. And we are given, we will be given an example of false worship, which is vanity, and instructions to guard against falling into that trap, falling into the trap of vain false worship. We are... One of the things, I don't normally do this. Every once in a while it's important, but I want you to look at our text today and I want us to look at the beginning, the very first part of it, and I want us to look at the very last part of it. So if you should have a Bible, it's helpful if you do, since we read from it weekly. But notice how our text begins. Chapter 5, the first part of, of verse 1. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. 
And notice how it ends. But God is the one you must fear. And so these two phrases, guard your steps when you go into the house of God and you must fear God. These two phrases, these two um, ideas serve as bookends, if you will. They They serve as a framework and everything in between those two phrases, guard your steps when you go into the house of God and fear God, everything in between describes how the worshiper is to approach God. So that's what we're going to be dealing with. How does a person approach God? How does a person approach God with guarded steps and acknowledging Him as above all things? How do we do that? What are the obstacles that might lead us away from doing this? What are the obstacles that might cause us to stumble in guarding our steps and fearing God? That's the, everything in between those two phrases is addressing that issue. So, one of the things we are going to learn is that the worship of God is not to be taken lightly. The worship of God is not to be taken lightly. Casual and or selfish worship of the Creator is vanity. It is striving after the wind. It is pointless. It is meaningless. And yet we oftentimes live in this realm of false worship even though it is pointless. So here's where we're going to go. You can see my kind of my outline these are the four main topics I want to address today. And the first one is listen. Listen to the Word of God. And the second will be keep your promises. The third thing we will deal with is fear God. And then finally, as we draw to an end, we want to draw this together, all of these points together in the person of Christ. So gospel connections. So with that... Um, as our introduction, if you will, join with me as we read our text today. Listen to the word of the living God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Church, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So we begin with... This idea, the preacher says, of listen up. Listen up! And he begins with this statement that watch your step, guard your steps. We might say, watch your step, watch where you go. 
Watch your step. When one enters the house of God, watch it. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Now, in Solomon's day, this would have been when they would enter into the temple. This was the temple that Solomon, the guy who wrote this book, constructed. It was the place where God was manifest. One ought not to approach God casually. That's the the point here. Do not approach God casually. We see this all the way through the Bible. In the book of Numbers, we see this. I mentioned this before the Lord's Supper. But in the in the book of Numbers, the tabernacle that was constructed was guarded by Levites. Levites were the priestly tribe, and they they were given to um, maintain and uh, uh, and to do the work of the tabernacle. And some of them were given the task of guarding the tabernacle. Some of the Levites were given the task of guarding the tabernacle. In other words, what they would do is they would limit who could approach the tabernacle. They were protecting the people from approaching God in an unworthy way. Because if they did, they would die. So those who guard the... Do not come to the tabernacle casually or mindlessly. Your very life is in peril if you approach God in an unworthy way. God protected the people from approaching the tabernacle in a defiled way by the Levites. And we see uh, an interesting passage in in 2 Chronicles um, chapter 7, verse 1 and following. This is uh, after Solomon had... um, built and dedicated the temple. Listen to um, the event after Solomon had built this incredible building, this incredible temple, and he has prayed and dedicated it. And then we pick up in Second Chronicles chapter 7-1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Guard your steps when you enter into the house of God, into the place where God has called His people to worship. Do not do so idly or casually. When God approached Moses in the wilderness, He told Moses, Take off your sandals, for the ground you are standing on is holy ground. This is not the place to be casual with me. This is not the place just to flippantly say, hey dude, what's happening? This is the place where God is present. The one who fills the temple to such a a degree that the priests and the the Levites can't even enter into the presence, into um, into the temple itself. Watch your step when you approach God to worship. And then he says this, 
To draw near to listen is better than to offer a sacrifice of fools. So guard your steps and be prepared to listen. It is better to draw near with eyes wide open than with mouth wide open. In fact, God did not call Israel to speak. He did not see, say in the great Shema in Deuteronomy, he did not see, say, speak, O Israel. What does he say? Hear, O Israel. The preacher's assumption in the book of Ecclesiastes is that one, when, when one enters the house of God, there will be something to listen to. The word of God will be present. The centrality of the word of God then is recognized by the preacher. When you enter into the house of God, guard your steps and be ready to hear what God has to say. We should note that this is a posture of humility when we come to listen. Listening is a posture of humility. Maybe a courtroom is a good example. Many, many years ago, I... um, I, I served on the grand jury down in Globe, and that was a very interesting and kind of an, I have to admit, I, I did kind of enjoy it. Don't tell the people down at the court that I enjoyed it. They'll, they'll have me come back. But for, I think, 17 weeks, I went every Wednesday. And I was the foreman on the grand jury. And when we were done, each Each Wednesday, we would enter into the courtroom and the judge was there and we sat down and the judge gave instructions and then the judge would look over and ask the foreman to give a report of what was done that day. Here's the thing. As the foreman, I didn't just walk into the courtroom and say, hey, judge, what's happening? Let me just tell you all the stuff that happened today. I sat and we listened. And we heard his instructions before we did anything. And only when he gave permission did we speak up. And so there was a place of authority. In other words, he's the judge and we are not. He's the guy in charge of this room. Not me. Even though I have a title of foreman, he still is the one who who is in charge of this room, and we humble ourselves, if you will. We have a posture of humility before this one. We listen and limit our speech. Our primary objective when we gather together is not to inform God, but to be informed by our Maker's guidance. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 is very helpful. God, in ages past, spoke to our forefathers by the, through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. God speaks. He speaks to his people We have his word. This is God's gift to his people. But more, even even greater, he has spoken to us in his son. When guard your steps, when you go into the house of God, it is better to listen. God's word is a gift of God's kindness 
God's word is his gift to his people and we are his humble recipients. I'm grateful that at this church we prioritize the word of God, whether it be in our prayers or in the songs we sing, um, in the words that come from, from the pulpit, whoever is preaching, because God speaks to his people clearly. And when we gather, do we gather to listen? And he says, better it is, better than to, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So now the, the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes is making a contrast. It's better to listen to what God has to say than to offer the sacrifice of fools. In other words, there is a right way to worship and a wrong way to worship. And we see this from the very beginning of Scripture. Cain came with an insufficient or a wrong offering or perhaps a wrong attitude, depending on how you understand that. But there was a right way and a wrong way, and God spoke to Cain about offering rightly. And of course, very famously, um, Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire on the altar of God, and they were slain for that. There is a right way to offer to God, and there is a wrong way to worship to God. And so here we see the listening ear is contrasted with the mouth of fools. Their offering now, the, the offering, this offering of fools is, is not the profane offerings of a defective lamb that many of the prophets talk about. We see many of the prophets talk about, oh, you brought some lame, blind, marred animal to offer. Malachi says, really? You're bringing that to God? Would you even offer that to your governor? No, you wouldn't. That's not what the preachers of Ecclesiastes is dealing with here. He's dealing with um, a different sacrifice, a sacrifice of fools. So this is not the profane offerings of a defective lamb that is mentioned often by the prophets. Rather, he is talking about this, those who enter into the presence of God and sin with their mouths. They offer empty phrases, thinking that the more they talk, the more God will be impressed. Matthew chapter 6, um, verse 7, and um, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 are, are helpful scriptures for us. They are in your notes. These are those who heap up empty phrases. I think maybe the, the parable of the publican and the Pharisee are a good example. So what did the Pharisee do when he went before God? He said, Oh God, I'm so grateful that you haven't made me like so-and-so. I don't do this and I don't do that. And he heaps up all of these words of praises of himself. But the, but the publican falls down and says, Have mercy on me, a sinner. He does not heap up phrases. He does not um, try to impress anybody with his eloquence in speech, but merely falls before the living God and says, Have mercy on me a sinner. Scripture regularly draws our attention to the worship of God being merely lip service. I put a couple of passages up here that I think are helpful. In Isaiah, they're all over the Bible, but two that are of significance. And the Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is 
a commandment taught by men. This is what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is talking about. People who draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is the sacrifice of fools. Yes, offering a defective offering is a is a sin and egregious and God calls it out. But here, the preacher is talking about something very specific. Foolish speech towards God in the house of God. Those who are near to God in the things they say, but far from God in the heart. We see Jesus dealing with this, for Jesus stands in this prophetic tradition when he calls out the religious leaders of their external only religion in Matthew 23, chapter 27 through 28. But look at, we have this up on the screen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside. You come into the house of God. You look great. Everybody admires. And you, your speech is eloquent and refined. And everybody goes, oh man, that, that person must be really religious. They must really love God. But inside, you are full of dead men's bones. You are no different than a whitewashed grave. Paul picks up this theme in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, where he identifies some as those who have the appearance of godliness but deny the transformative power of faith. So there's this contrast. It is better to listen when you enter into the sanctuary of God. It is better to listen to God than it is to offer up the sacrifice of fools. There is, church, an appropriateness in prayer, and God takes great pleasure in our supplications. He is not just saying, be quiet and don't say anything. There is a time and a place where we offer up our prayers and our supplications. But let's be honest, we can often seek to make up for the deficiency of our prayer life with the quantity of the words of prayer. Even heartfelt prayers, I think perhaps we recognize this, even heartfelt prayers can sometimes be selfish. And we pour out a stream of pious phrases that might impress others, but simply conceal a selfish heart. I guess the question is this, do we really mean what we say when we stand in the house of God? I'll ask that again. Do we really mean what we say when we come into the house of God. So when we sing a hymn, do you mean it? Or are you just going through the motions, saying the words? When we recite a creed, or at the end of every church service, we recite a benediction, we read God's word to each other. Do we mean it? Or are we just going through reading the words on the screen? And my mind is somewhere else. Let not our words be the sacrifice of fools. For God is in heaven and we are on the earth. There is this vast chasm between God 
and people. He is not like us. Church, God is not like us. There is this infinite distance between him and us. The creature-creator distinction is critical in the context of worship. We see this in Isaiah chapter 55, very well-known passage of text. It says, Your thoughts are not my thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. My ways are different than yours, and my thoughts are different than yours. There is this infinite distance between the creator and the creature. We are not divine. There are many people, even in so-called Christian churches today, the prosperity gospel will claim that you are little gods. You are not. That is a lie. You are not little gods. New Age thought says that um, everything is infused with God. So this table is infused with God and you are infused with God. The Bible is very clear. That is not true. God is in heaven and we are on the earth. Let us be men and women who when we speak and we sing songs and we pray prayers and we um, uh, recite creeds and benedictions that we do so in a way that um, is not the sacrifice of fools. And let us be prepared to hear what God would have to say to us when we gather together. And then the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, goes in and he gives a little proverb in verse 3, for a dream comes with much busyness, or with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. I won't go into great detail. Trumper Longman translates this or paraphrases this well. He says, work leads to many dreams and foolishness leads to many words. So a quick summary. The sacrifice of fools may be the careless observance of religion without any intention of having one's soul stirred by the presence of God. The imperative, guard your steps, is an expression of love for those engaged in worship. Guard your steps. Be cautious about approaching God in a casual way. Then the preacher moves on. And basically in this next section he's going to say, keep your promise. When you vow a vow to God, keep your promise. When you vow a vow, the vow in this verse is a vow that is made to God. Vows were really common in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. We see quite a bit of them. Let me give you, this is my definition of a vow. You can make up your own. But I'm defining a vow in the Bible as this. A conscious, deliberate, voluntary promise to do something. It's just that simple. A conscious, deliberate, voluntary promise to do something. Vows in the Bible are voluntary. Nobody was required to make a vow to God. They were entirely at the discretion of the worshiper. The vast majority of vows in the Bible are religious in nature and they promise some type of offering to God. They are if then. If you will do this for me, God, then I will do that. That's 
what we basically mean by a vow before God. And they are made either to the Lord directly or they are made in the presence of the Lord where he is the witness to the promise being made. So I may make a promise to somebody and call God in as a witness. So in essence, I am calling God to hold this vow, hold me to account of my vow, or I may make the vow to another individual. Or I am sorry, or I may make the vow to God directly. There are a number of famous vows in the Bible. I'll give you three. The first one is the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was a dedication where one would dedicate themselves to God, usually for a period of time. It was a period of time where they would yield themselves completely to God. Now, we have a few examples of people who, who were Nazarites from their birth all the way through their life. But generally, it was a time where somebody would dedicate themselves entirely to God, and at the end of the Nazarite vow, they would offer a sacrifice. Maybe one of the most famous vows, it was a foolish vow, but one of the most famous ones is in Judges 11.30 from Jephthah. And um, he basically vows to God, if you will give me victory over the Ammonites, then I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. We call it a foolish vow because the first thing that came out of his house was his daughter. Jephthah kept his vow. And perhaps maybe the most, one of the most famous vows and one that is much more happy than the last one is Hannah. In 1 Samuel 1.11, she was barren and had no children and she desired a child. And she would go to the temple yearly and pray. And this one year she was praying and she said, Lord, if you will give me a son, I will dedicate him to you completely and he will become your servant forever. And God heard her prayer. So it was an if then, if you will do this, then this is what I will do. This will be my offering. If you will give me a son, then I will offer him completely to you in your service. God heard her prayer and received her vow and gave her a son and she named him Samuel and after Samuel's weaned, she gave him into temple service and he became one of the great men in all of scripture. Once again, she made a vow and she kept it. So here's the point of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. If you're going to make a vow, keep your vow. Do what you say you're going to do. When you make a vow to God, be certain to keep it. Now let's face it, it's much easier to make a promise than it is to keep it. A Nazarite would say, well, I'm going to totally dedicate myself to the Lord and then afterwards I'm going to offer a sacrifice of, I don't know, a a goat and a bird and whatever. Well, then when it comes time to do it, it's like, you know, goats are kind of expensive and kind of, you know, kind of hurting financially. So, you know, I'm going to try to work my way out of this thing. God is saying, you are a fool. Keep your vow. It is much easier to make a promise than to keep it. And in fact, we see this in Jesus' day. The religious leaders um, created numerous loopholes to absolve them from their promises. Once again, in Matthew chapter 23, we've been there quite a bit. 
but they would, uh, basically, they came up with all these loopholes. We would say, you know what, I crossed my fingers when I made a promise, right? Do, do we still do that? I don't even know if that's still a thing, but when I was a growing up, you know, we'd say, oh, I promise I'll do whatever, but, uh, but I'm crossing my fingers. And so that negates my vow. It's a loophole that allows me to, to promise you something and then not do it. And, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders had all sorts of ways. Well, I promised by the gold of the, by, by the temple. Well, I didn't really promise by the temple. I promised by, the, they just made up all kinds of crazy things. So they, they didn't have to keep their vow. They could vow, listen, God, or, or they would have somebody do, they'd say, I promised to do something, but then they would have a loophole that allowed them to escape. Jesus called them out on them, and he calls them blind fools, and he pronounces a woe upon them. Woe to you, blind fools. As you seek to absolve yourself of the promise that you made with God as witness, or the promise that you made directly to God, you are a blind fool. Woe to you. When you make a vow to God, keep your vow to God. God takes no pleasure in fools. And the fool is the one who promises and then seeks to back out of that promise. And so just as many words are a sign of being a fool, so is making a promise to God that you will not keep. Even if you had great intentions at the beginning of the vow, and then you kind of lose interest as the vow goes along. And we've heard, we've heard this often, right? I promise, Lord God, if you give me that new job, I'll be way more generous with people. You just made a vow to God. Don't be a fool and not keep it. That's what he's saying. Don't say, oh, well, you know what other things came up. You vowed before God. You're better off not making a vow at all. I promise that if you get me out of this mess, I will go to church every Sunday. If you've made that vow to God, we are here every Sunday at 10 a.m. We expect you to be here. God, you made the vow to God. Now fulfill your vow. Even words spoken rashly, vows with made, made without thinking are to be kept Psalm chapter 15:4 talks about the wise man who keeps his vow or keeps his oath even to his keeps his promise even to his own hurt. Yes, even when it becomes inconvenient to keep your vow or you spoke rashly, keep your vow. Keep your promise. Jesus instructed us that our yes should be yes, that we are to be people of integrity. Let your yes be yes and your nay be nay. If you're going to do it, do it. If you're not, then don't. So just a couple of things here. Let me think of some vows that you and I may have made. Those of us who are married, we made a vow in marriage. We not only vowed to our spouse, but we called God in as a witness And we said, I promise to honor and to obey and to love you until the day we die. I promise never to go after another. You are mine and I am yours. God is witness. We probably fulfill that imperfectly. But church, 
That is the vow you made and you called God to be the witness of that vow. Keep your vow. It's not like just a piece of paper that we just signed. I vowed before God as witness. And many of you who got married not only had God as witness, but you had many other people sitting around as witnesses to your marriage. Keep your vow. This was a verse that really spoke to me when I was a brand new believer. I don't even know why I was reading Ecclesiastes. It was in the Bible and I believe the Bible. But I remember reading this idea of keep your vow. I remember, Lord, when I came to you for salvation, I made a vow. I vowed that I would serve you every day of my life. If you would forgive me of my sins. Notice the if then. If you would save me, then I would serve you every day of my life. Church, and people who come for baptism make a vow. Do you vow to renounce the devil and all of his works? Yes. Do you vow to, call, to, to rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? Yes. Do you vow to live in integrity and a, and a life that is pleasing to God? Yes, I do. Church, if you've ever made that vow, keep your vow. You are a fool if you said, if you will save me, then I will serve you every day of my life. We are fools if we don't do that. Church membership. If we came to the church and we said, yes, I'm going to be a member and I vow to hold, one, hold each other accountable. I vow that you can hold me accountable. I vow that I will help direct and guide the church as a uh, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I vow that I will support the church. I vow that I will speak with integrity about people. And if they have sinned, I vow that I will go talk to them about that privately. I have vowed all of these things. Church. Well, I'll just say this. <clears throat> you have a business meeting on December 4th. If you are a member of this church, I would just... <clears throat> Not to guilt you. But you made a vow. And I know that there are times we can't do certain things and what have you. But we have vowed to one another. Let's keep our vows. Goes on, he says, God takes no pleasure in fools. It is better that you should vow a vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth, let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. And there's a, a lot of ideas about who this messenger is, but I think that the messenger here is that the temple and the tabernacle had people who basically collected the vow. If there was a Nazarite vow and you, you were, the vow required a, a lamb and a goat and, and a turtle dove, somebody would come to collect do not tell that person, oh yeah, I just made a mistake. That's, that's the idea. You, you don't get out of your vow. It is better, the messenger then would have probably been a temple attendant responsible for collecting the vows. A very famous saying, it is better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. James 3 tells us that the mouth can lead us to sin. And this is the message, this is the preacher's point. Keep your promises when you vow a vow. 
do what you said you're going to do. You are a fool if you do not. So guard your steps when you enter into the house of God. Be prepared to listen to what God has to say. Let your words be few. And when you make a promise before God or to God, keep your promises. Our third point is the the admonition or the exhortation to fear God. And this is the heart of the matter. What the, what the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, is informing us is that there is no fear of God in worship. That God is not revered. He is not held in awe. Paul, in Romans 3.18, quotes Psalm 36.1 when he lists this list of things that, the, that, that people who are far from God do. And he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. God is to be, and the preacher is dealing with those who do not revere or hold God in awe, but come and heap up wonderful phrases and they look really good on the outside, but inside they are dead men's bones. See, God is in heaven and we are on the earth. And we are to fear God. That is, our greatest concern is not to bring dishonor to the name of God. Fear of God is also always accompanied by appropriate action. So, fear God and worship. We are to proceed in reverence when we enter the house of God. I would encourage you to prepare yourself before you come to worship. I've put this out on media before. But prepare I hope that you read the text. If you're not sure where I'm going to go, just pick up and read a chapter or two. If you don't know where I'm going to end, that's okay. Next week we'll pick up at Ecclesiastes 5.8. I'm not sure if I'm going to get through 6 or not, but 5.8 at least. Prepare yourself. Prepare your heart. Come prayerfully. Be ready to listen, to hear God's word. Come near to God, God, to hear God's word. Listen. Listen in the reading of scripture. Listen to the words of God in prayer. Sing the songs. Proclaim the glories of God. Let us be thoughtful in the things we say. But God is the one you must fear. And certainly in the place, in the sanctuary of God, when he has called us to worship, this is the place where we, he ought to be held in highest regard. Well, we can probably beat ourselves up pretty badly on some of this, and probably all of us have uh, <coughs> maybe fallen short. So let me uh, share with you some gospel connections. And uh, sh- I-, I hope to leave you encouraged. I don't want to just give you a bunch of law, fear God and watch your vows and, you know, listen. The bottom line is this. The New Testament, Jesus told us that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. But let's be honest, there's no, that's no easy task. And all of us are prone to going through the motions of worship. We are easily distracted by the noise in our head. 
We come to church and we come to the house of God and we maybe even think we're ready to worship and then the song starts and our mind goes to um, challenges in our family, a sick loved one. They, they go to worries that we might have. And I'll admit that, yeah, even I, you know, we sit up here and somebody then five minutes before the church started presented me with a crisis. And so now I'm, I'm trying to sing the song, but my mind is thinking about the crisis. And I'm going through the motions. I'm saying the words. But is my heart far from God? Sometimes. In other words, worshiping in spirit and truth as commanded by Jesus is no easy task. And every one of us are prone to go through the, word, the, the motions. We say the words, we sing the songs, we pray the prayers, we say amen, we take the communion, and our minds are somewhere else. Our hearts are far from God. I think that probably applies to everybody in here. We are easily distracted. One of the interesting things about our Lord Christ when he walked the earth, it's interesting because Jesus worshipped. He went to the temple and he went to the synagogues and he offered sacrifices and he prayed prayers and he sang hymns, he sang the Psalms. He listened to the word of God when it was read. He prayed prayers and said amen at the end of prayers that were prayed corporately. He joined in the singing of the psalms. His words exalted the Father. And just as in the rest of his earthly life where Jesus kept God's word perfectly, Jesus kept God's word perfectly in worship. Exactly how God commanded him to be worshipped, Jesus followed that prescription perfectly. What does that mean for us? It means this. By faith, our worship is made whole. Our imperfect worship is received by God because of the perfect worship of Jesus being imputed to us or credited to us. A lot of times we talk about um, Jesus' righteousness being alien to us or outside of us and it is imputed or credited to us that Jesus kept the law and his perfect keeping of the law is then credited to us. And that's a great truth in the Bible because I don't know about you but I'm not always righteous. I I know that shocks you. But Christ credits Christ kept the law perfectly. I break the law daily but I am righteous because I am in Christ and his righteousness is credited to me. But when we speak of his righteousness being credited to us, sometimes we limit that to the ethical or the moral. That it's only about, you know, did I lie, cheat, steal, or think, you know, scandalous thoughts. But Jesus' righteousness is credited to us not only in moral and ethical things, but in our worship. Our errant, flawed worship is forgiven. We hear God's word and we take it for granted sometimes. We hear of his death for our sake and we hear of the empty tomb and we say, oh, I've heard this before. Let me 
make a list of things I need to do after church. Because I've heard about the resurrection. I know that. I got that down pat. And so I can use this time to be efficient and make a list for myself. Church, we can be guilty of the sacrifice of fools and empty vows. We hear of his death and his resurrection for our sake. We hear of the empty tomb and we take it for granted. But because Christ worshipped perfectly in spirit and in truth, and he kept the law of God perfectly in worship, we can now approach God and no longer do we have to say, if I worship correctly, God will accept me. We no longer need to think, if I worship correctly, God will accept me. Now, church, because of Christ, worshiping perfectly on our behalf, we say, I am accepted through Christ. It is now my privilege to worship God as he prescribed. There's a vast difference. If I worship correctly, God will accept me. Or, I am accepted through Christ, and now it is my honor and privilege to worship him as he has prescribed. Jesus died for our sins, and he lived without blemish. Our sins, in this case, empty worship, is credited to his account. His righteousness, in this case, pure worship in spirit and truth, is credited to our account. We stand complete in him. Church, I pray that we come and we worship truly in spirit and in truth and that our minds stay fixed on Christ. But I know that many of us wander. Our minds go in all sorts of places. And we say the words and we go through the motions and our hearts are far from God. Church, Christ even bore that in his body on the tree and you can worship freely and his his righteousness his keeping the law of worship perfectly on 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 God's behalf is now credited to your account we church are complete in him and we stand in a good place father god we give